Welcome to Carolina True Crime, a podcast presented by WMBF News in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, where we take a deep dive into infamous crimes from the Carolinas, some with clear endings and others where mystery remains. Tally, news director at WMBF, and today we have a continuation of the story of the Bigums, a family linked to many murders over a hundred-year period, including those of their own family. Today, I'm the one telling the story, talking with our anchor, Audrey Bisque. Hey, and if you haven't listened to the first segment of the story of the Bigums, we really recommend that you go back and listen to that. It's the backstory of the Bigums. It's really important to this story we're telling you. In the last episode, Ashley, you told us about the first two generations of Bigums, who were reportedly tied to at least 11 murders. Right. Last time, we ended with a particularly brutal murder from the third generation of the family, when Smiley Bigum Jr. and two friends are believed to have beaten a young black man who Smiley thought had injured his mule. And after they beat him, they supposedly drove a long nail into his ear and into his brain that killed him. Now, we've seen many of the Bigums get away with murder, quite literally, but this time, Smiley is actually charged with murder, right? That's right. We talked about it a little at the end of the last episode, but we're in the summer of 1909 here, July, actually, and At the end, we talked about the fact that Smiley Jr. was actually charged in the murder of this young 16-year-old man, Arthur Davis. Um, He died in that awful way you described. I mean, that that, to me, that's one of the most awful murders that that we've talked about. Um, But remember, the Bigums know the law. They know how to get around it or away from it. And Smiley Jr. quickly bonds out, heads home, and that's where the beginning of another notorious murder plot starts. The family comes together. They're very um, clannish, right? Like they're very close, and they're and they're while they may fight amongst one another, they're you know going to fight the outside world together. So, according to Catherine Bowling, a reminder that that's one of the books um, that I use as a primary source. Um, a piece of the fox's hide is her book, as well as the book The Last of the Binghams by um, Ziegler. Those are the two main things that we looked at for this podcast. But according to her, the family convened to decide how they were all going to be on the same page about Smiley. Mm, Basically like, hey, we're going to provide an alibi. Uh, You're going to do this. You're going to do this. You're going to say he was here. And they all agree. You know, Edmund says, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, you know, I was outside chopping wood, and, and you're going to say you were lonely and you begged Smiley to stay home that night. And we're just going to get together and lie. Lie our way through Yeah, it. <laughs> exactly. But there's one holdout this time. If you remember, there's three sons. There's five children total. Marjorie, the older sister. Letha, the younger sister. We don't hear much about her. She ends up dying soon. Um, then the three brothers, Smiley Jr., Edmund, and then Dr. Grover Cleveland Bigham. He was the youngest son. If you remember, he was um, maybe a little more clever, a little more practical than his other brothers. Uh, And he was married to this beautiful girl named Ruth. Um, Ruth says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to lie. Why why would I perjure myself? I'm not going to lie for your brother. And they're all like, (gasps) like, of course, like, 
you know, they're already distrustful of the outside world. Mm -hmm. This is somebody who's married into the family. It's already a sense of distrust there. And um, Cleveland, her husband, is is really mad. Like, Mm -hmm. I brought you into this house and you're, you're, like, going to go against my family. This could be my brother's life. So it becomes an argument between them, too. Mm -hmm. So at that point that night, he says, I'm going to take her home. So they, they, they walk out. They leave the house where this discussion's been going on. And supposedly, according to these sources, Cleveland comes back in and says something like, um, never you mind, don't worry, Mama. Mm-hmm. She will never testify against a bigum. Oh, no. So they return home. Smiley's trial is set for October of that year, 1909. Um, in late summer, early September 1909, Cleveland and Ruth um, are invited down to Merle's Inlet to spend a few days with their friends, Mr. and Mrs. William Avent. They're a young couple. They have a house there in this um, area called Sunnyside, which some houses still exist in this I was area. Ask you. Yeah. Yeah, they do. Um, it's also an ironic name, Sunnyside, for for what will happen soon. But this was a a place that um, basically wealthy planners who lived in the PD in in mm-hmm. Marion, Florence, Williamsburg County came in the summertime to escape the bugs and you oh, know yeah. just kind of have a vacation just like we do now. And so there were these little houses that were right on the inlet there. Um, so September 4th. You know what it's like here September 4th. September. It's still summer basically, it's right? Humid it's, hot, it's humid, yeah. you can still mm-hmm. swim, it's still warm and everything. So they're visiting with their friends this early September weekend. It's a Saturday, September 4th. And um Ruth and Cleveland have continued to argue about this testimony thing. You know, the the, the trial's coming up in October, a month away. Yeah. This discussion happened back in July, so for a couple months, she's, she's refused, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to testify, I'm not going to lie for your brother. And so, obviously, that's creating some discord between this couple, who has been married just over a year. Like they're, that's they're, it. Yeah, they're okay. still newlyweds, and she's young, she's 23, mm. um, he's much older, I think he's in his early 30s, not much older, but you know, mm. there's, there's a, a bit of a gap there. Um, and William Avent, the, the man whose house they're visiting with, this couple, is 23, too. He's younger as well. And his wife is actually older, too. So that's interesting. Um, there are a lot of different accounts of what happened on September 4th, 1909, at Sunnyside. Um, there's one that's, they, that's been go- going around that, that Avent was a, a simpleton, a, a man that, whose mind wasn't all there, that he was superstitious, and Cleveland knew that, and um, that Cleveland used his simple-mindedness to coerce him to do something that he might otherwise not have. Uh-huh. Um, another version is that they were drinking together too much and um, William had had more than Cleveland but you know they that that's the other that's the other version what happens as far as the facts that we know um, is that Ruth William and Cleveland were on the front porch having a drink Cleveland and Ruth had been arguing Ruth put on her bathing suit. She was going to go to a... And I can only imagine what the bathing suit... It must have been one of those, like, full, you know, leg, arm things. <laughs> and then she puts on a coat over it, a raincoat. 
um, I guess maybe maybe it wasn't decent to walk around in just mm-hmm. your bathing suit, but she's going to go for a swim. It's it's late in the evening, not late in the evening, late in the afternoon, so okay. maybe almost s- dusk. Almost dusk, six or seven o'clock. It's getting dark, and for whatever reason, which we're going to explore a little bit as we go on, William Avent takes a double barrel shotgun and shoots at what he believes to either be a ghost or a burglar. And it's Ruth Bigham. Oh my gosh. We'll set the scene a little bit. The house of Sunnyside is set a little bit back from the inlet. You can see the water, but it's a little bit further out. From what I read, at this time there were big trees there and Spanish moss kind of hung down, and so maybe it wasn't a direct line of sight. Maybe. I don't know. Um, But those are the facts of what happened. So it's hard to believe that the fighting, the Mm -hmm. family talk and all that isn't related to this. At first, there are no charges. The coroner's inquest determines that it's accidental. Mm. And you might think that the bride's family would be suspicious, but at first they're not because they go to the funeral and Cleveland is distraught. Mm. So he's either a very good actor or, you know, he, it was a total accident. He's completely innocent. So it seems like, once again, nobody's going to be held accountable for another murder. But at this point, journalism steps in. Yeah. The state newspaper out of Columbia, you know, which still exists, they interview these fishermen who were right offshore. When it happened? When it happened, that night. And they said they could clearly see that it was a woman. They heard the shots. They heard, um, you know, William and... Fussing with them. Right. well, Well, they heard William and Cleveland come down to the shore and sort of start exclaiming. Okay. Oh, no. Right. Oh, my God. In, in fact, supposedly, William said, my God, I've committed a murder. And supposedly, Cleveland said, um, my God, you've killed my little wife. Oh, wow. That gives me goosebumps. I know. I know. But these, the two fishermen, and the reason that their testimony is surprising is because they had left before the coroner got there to question them. So they weren't part of that coroner's inquiry, right? That's how they used to determine whether charges would be fired, filed or not mm-hmm. is um, the coroner would interview everybody. and around. Right, yeah. exactly. So rather than like a police officer, it would be a coroner. At this point, there's an uproar about this article. I mean, people are just very upset all over the state because they think, Again, these people are getting away yeah. with murder. This beautiful little girl from Lawrence County yeah. is walking along the seashore, and her husband and his friend shoot her, shoot her. in the For back. For no reason. In the back. Oh. Um, so at this point, Georgetown Sheriff's Office takes out murder warrants on both Cleveland and William Avon. Here's um, a short account of how it happened from a Sumter newspaper. This is from September 11th, 1909. C.J. Fletcher yesterday swore out a warrant for William B. Avent as principal and for Dr. G.C. Bigham as accessory for the killing of Mrs. G.C. Bigham, wife of the latter, at Merle's Inlet on Saturday night last. The verdict of the coroner's jury reads as follows, that the deceased came to her death by a gunshot wound at the hands of W.B. Avent and G.C. Bigham as accessory thereto, both men laboring under great mental excitement and fear at the time of the deed. Wow. 
And it goes on. It is a strong opinion of everyone in this neighborhood that the shooting was inexcusable in its gross carelessness and deserves to be investigated to the bottom. It is reported that one of the probable causes of the men shooting at the unknown object was because Sunnyside House was said to be haunted and they thought it was a ghost. The deputy sheriff is expected to arrive with the two men tonight. So even in these first accounts, mm. this ghost story, right? Well, why can, are you shooting at a ghost to begin with? I think that's absolutely. That's not and we'll, and we'll we'll see why in a second. We'll we'll see why when it comes to testimony at the trial. Um. So okay, so now Cleveland and and, and William are in custody. They're in the Georgetown jail. Okay. But if you remember, he's not the only brother in jail. Smiley Jr. is still in jail too for the murder of the 16-year-old boy of, with the with nail. The, the nail through the ear yes. and the head. Okay. Yeah. So, luckily, the trials don't happen at the same time because they're both being represented by the same guy, this guy, Jay Willard Ragsdale, um, who was a former senator or congressman himself. Wow. If you remember, their father was a senator, yeah. mm-hmm. state senator, um, and, you know, a successful politician for a while. So, it's... it's you know, it just shows a, a connection of, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're a connected people to some extent. So the family does just what they said they were going to do. They come together. They say, oh, Smiley was here all night. But there's no way he could have done that. And he's acquitted. So family's happy, but now they have to move on to Cleveland's trial. So they're both charged with murder. Um, and some people say that some reports say that Avent testified about the ghost. Um, and here's what Ziegler wrote about that court hearing. This is interesting. And I don't, I don't know whether you remember the, if we've read any Ziegler before, but he's quite flowery in his descriptions. So um, Avent made a pitiful sight as he related the incidents leading up to the night of the tragedy of how he got in the frame of mind that made it possible to fire the shot that killed Ruth Bigham. No, that was not the first night he had seen a ghost on the shore of that inlet. Two weeks before, he had been aroused by a gentle tapping near his window. The blinds were open. The night was hot. He saw a white apparition almost fill his window. He screamed and it disappeared. The next night, he was sitting on his front porch, still thinking about the strange, disquieting sight of the night before, when he saw a flimsy something seem to come out of the water's edge where the inlet ran in front of the house and settled in a heap upon the shore. Right. You can see where this is going. Mm -hmm. He called to his friend Cleveland, but received no answer. He was afraid to move. He said the blood fairly froze in his veins. He was afraid to go to sleep, afraid the same ghost of the night before would return. The next morning, he told Cleveland what he had seen. Cleveland seemed surprised and warned him not to let his wife know about these strange supernatural beings infesting the inlet. The Avits were expecting. The, his wife was pregnant, and so no. Cleveland was warning him. Not not Ruth. Oh, okay. No, no, no. William's wife was pregnant, okay. and so he was saying, Don't tell. Don't tell her. her. It'll worry her, okay. right? Um, Dr. Bigham warned Avent that if his wife would see one of these spirits, it would probably kill her. Isn't that ironic? Oh, wow. Avent swore to the jury that this was the reason he meant to rid the inlet of ghosts at any cost. That Cleveland had also told him that if he fired his gun at a ghost, that he couldn't harm it, of course, and at the same time, it would frighten it away for good in all time. So Cleveland, according to Ziegler, according to this testimony, mm-hmm. implanted this idea into Avent's head that if you shoot at a ghost, it'll go away for all time. 
So, um, how can a jury believe that? Right. I mean, even in in 1909, it's not like yeah. people are. It's not the Middle Ages or whatever, <laughs> right? Like it's not that long ago. Read a little bit more about that testimony. He was a large man, I guess. This big man begged for time to gather his wits. The prosecution assented. His strength was plainly spent. So vividly did the happenings of that tragic night come back to him. He began again, describing how the day died out of the sky that fatal night, how his every nerve was on edge. Cleveland had sat down beside him on the porch and had just told him that he felt spirits were in the very air about them. Then he told how a form swept by them and made for the old oak that grew on the bank of the inlet. Of Cleveland suggesting that now was the time to get the gun and frighten the intruder away. That he wouldn't have had the nerve to approach so near to what he thought was a ghost. But Cleveland led him on, assuring him that it was only a spirit and could not harm him. That Cleveland told him when to fire. That he pointed the gun and shut his eyes and pulled the trigger. That when it didn't disappear... His heart seemed to stop beating. I thought, my God, suppose. Then Cleveland turned over the prostrate form of his wife, and I saw her pale face in the moonlight. No matter what happens to me now, gentlemen, I could never suffer as I did that night. I must have gone crazy, for they say I danced and hollered and around that dead body. That's all I know. Oh. Isn't that terrible? So, I mean... If that's true, if, if that is the way the court went down, yeah, you can see this is a troubled guy, right? He's got some mental issues if he's believing in ghosts and he believes shooting at them and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, other accounts in newspapers that I read said that they claimed that it was a burglar. Okay. Um, and, and, and that's what Cleveland said, that, that they were sitting on the porch, they'd been drinking, they saw this figure come around the side of the house. He said they called to it. Hey, who goes there? Who who's there? They got no answer, and that's when they shot. They shot. Okay. Um, they're feeling pretty good about the trial. They don't. They think that they'll get you away know, with it. They'll get away. I mean, clearly it was accidental, right? Who means to shoot their beautiful wife? Mm-hmm. And you know, it's so sad. Blah blah blah. Um, the jury is out about two hours and does not convict them of murder but does find them both guilty of manslaughter. So, unintentional killing. Um, They immediately appeal, and when a higher court denies the appeal, they both take off. William is later recognized in Texas by this man from South Carolina, recognizes him, um, you know, telegraphs the police, and he's arrested and brought back. Wow. Yeah, he serves a few months in jail, maybe a year, I'm not sure exactly how long. And after that, he's out, reunites with his wife, and his wife has since had a little girl, and supposedly lives a good life uh, as a farmer in Williamsburg County for the rest of his life. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Didn't see that coming. Right. I know. Right. So not not a happily ever after because apparently he was um, still not mentally all there. Mm-hmm. I guess. Um, but Cleveland is never located. They never find him to this day. Don't know what happened to him. A lot of people what? say, yes, he took off after that because he did not want, oh, he, they were sentenced to three and a half years of hard labor in the penitentiary. That's that was it. their sentence, three and a half years. Um, and they, he didn't want to do it. He, I mean, I think that goes back, you can go back to all the generations that we've looked at of mm. 
the law can't tell me what to do. Right. I'm above I'm that. Entitled. I'm entitled. So what does he do? He takes off. Yeah. Supposedly, um, you know, supposedly he was cited in Greenville in Texas. Most people think that he settled in Atlanta, hmm. got a new wife, had some daughters, lived under an assumed name. I mean, that's not that far from Florence or like people it's who not. would know of him. But during that time, there probably wasn't that much travel back and forth. Okay, yeah. Um, so other reports say that he would come back and secretly visit the family sometimes. And some people even say that they had a secret room built in their home where he could just stay when him. he came. Oh my I know. Isn't that just crazy? So after that, things become sort of sad for the family. Marjorie, the older woman, she's never had children, but she was married to this Dr. Black. He leaves her. He moves back to Florida. He can't mm-hmm. take the family and yeah, be in there or whatever. Yes. Yeah, exactly. She's a teacher. They never live together again. She does get some happiness. She eventually adopts these two little boys, Leo and John McCracken. Um, Their mother, if you remember around the early, late 19-teens, early 1920s, um, there's a really bad flu epidemic. Mm -hmm. So the boy's mother died in this flu epidemic, and I think they were sort of estranged from the father. So she adopted them. I think they were six and nine. So little boys, you know. She's living with the family. She's living in the house with um, her mother, Dora, and Smiley Jr., her brother. So it's Marjorie, her brother Smiley, their mother, and these two little boys living in the house. And remember they had a younger sister, Letha. Um, She also dies from the flu. So... Do you know how old she was? I don't. In her 20s. 20s. Yeah. Um, And she did have some, some children. There's a whole other thing of um, because of the bond that they lost from Cleveland skipping bail, they transferred some a bunch of their estate to Letha for like safekeeping so that it wouldn't be taken from them because they mm-hmm. skipped bond. It's, it's, it's a, it gets really complicated. I'm not going to go into all of it, um, but that does come into play a little bit later. And you should know at this point the estate of the Bigums. Remember, it's in. Lawrence County, mm-hmm. um, near the river, is worth about $75,000, according to newspaper reports. Which is a ton for that time. So, I did this. There's online. There's this thing, you know, how much, if it was worth that much then, how much, how much is it worth it now? now? And so, I did it, and it's almost a million dollars. Okay. So, yeah. you think of a mm-hmm. farming family in Florence with a state worth a million dollars? Like, that that's enough to fight over, yeah. you know? <laughs> Especially with five kids who are all... Um, Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, some, out, somewhat out there anyway. Um, so meanwhile, Edmund, we can go back to him, remember, he's the middle brother. He had moved away back in 1909 before Smiley's trial, so they yeah. didn't have to testify. So, you know, to kind of get away from everything. He went to Greenville for a while where his wife was from. He had two little daughters. Um, they went to Georgia and tried to farm, but really he just gambled. Mm-hmm. Um, supposedly, he lost really badly one night, and the man who he lost to was found in a swamp the next day with his head beaten in. And so, of course, police went to Edmund and said, mm-hmm. you know, what the heck? And uh, he said, yeah, that, that other guy, so-and-so that I was with, man, he was mad that he lost, too. The other guy charged with mur- is, with, is charged no. with murder, not Edmund. Oh, so, yeah. Um, they moved back to Greenville. But he's not doing so well. They don't have any money. They live with his wife's family for a lot of it. 
he's itching for money. Mm-hmm. And you've can you've can understand what type of man he was. If you know, we said he tried to farm but he gambled and maybe not the most honor honorable or, you know, working hard or anything. But hungry for money. But hungry for money. So according to Catherine Bowling, the author, um, with his last $36 that he had, he takes out an insurance policy on himself from which he can collect money in the case of an accident. So in other words, if he loses an eye, he gets $10,000. Loses a hand, gets 5000 So, so. <laughs> <laughs> you can probably guess where this is going. So he just happens to be near a train one day that runs over his arm and he loses his left hand arm his left hand um goes just happened it's so weird after he just you know got this insurance policy so he goes to collect the money you know goes to the insurance company and says hey look no hand give me that five thousand dollars and um they are clearly obviously suspicious. suspicious So it actually goes to a trial, and there's this man who was riding on the train who says he saw Edmund put his arm on the track. And so he doesn't have any money or any hand. <laughs> so it's, it's a little humorous, but it does lead to a desperation that brings him back to Florence County. He moves back in, this is the fall of 1920, um, back into the family home, you know, okay. this this kind of big family home that they have if you remember their father built um so it's him his wife their two daughters along with dora marjorie her two boys smiley all in the same house and that's nine people um you can imagine there was conflict Mm -hmm. um along with just the conflict of three women living in the same house, all trying to cook and (laughs) do different things and these children and everything. Uh, There's also the conflict of these three blank deeds of property that Marjorie had drawn up, Hmm. which is, it's it's an odd thing. It happened during the the bond jumping that Cleveland did, but basically she had a lawyer in Charleston draw up three blank deeds where if she were to die, her brother Smiley and the two boys, the McCrackens, would split up her part of the estate. And they could just fill in the deeds with their names. Now, why not go ahead and fill in their names? I don't know. I don't know yeah. about the property law, whatever. Um, and so, again, if you think about it, remember, it's nearly a million dollars. And so a third of that, or sorry, a fifth of that, I guess, if you're dividing between all the children, would still be a lot yeah. of money. So, you know, Edmund's not done well financially. He wants those blank deeds of his sisters. He wants them all. He wants the, all three of them. He wants mm-hmm. to take them. Because he's already spent his entire inheritance. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of theirs, a- according to what Marjorie told their family lawyer. So she figures out, he figures out where she hides them. She's a teacher. So she go, you know, she leaves home every day to go mm-hmm. teach. And um, while she's away one day, he goes in her room, looks between her mattresses, and finds the deeds and takes them. Wow. Um, all right. So this brings us to January 8th, 1921. Marjorie's a teacher, like I said, so Saturday she's not teaching. Edmund's out of the house doing something with timber on the farm, and, um, you know, she knows he's taking the, the things. She, she, who else would do it? Yeah. So she goes into the room that he shares with his wife and daughters. They're in this drawer of a, um, uh, like a high boy, a, you know, a big dresser, and it's locked. 
and she knows exactly what's in there. So she actually goes in and like pries it open, pulls the papers out. Um, she and the wife start to like fight and yell at each other. Mm. The wife sends one of the daughters, go get your dad. Tell him I need him right now. So little Louise or Evelyn, I don't know which one, runs to, to get Edmund wherever he is on the farm. And when he comes back, according to Bowling, his mother, Dora, she's a lot older now, you know, lived in this conflicting, this house full of conflict, yeah. tries to stop him. Don't go upstairs. She knows what he's capable of, right? Yeah. So according to a Fox's, um, a piece of the Fox's Hide, the book that we've been talking about, he picks up a barrel stave, which is like the metal part that goes around a barrel that you make, you know, if you were to make a barrel, uh-huh. and starts beating her, his own mother, to get her oh out of the way. Oh, my God. And so then she retreats. She kind of falls back into the kitchen. Um, Ziegler's account says that then Edmund dragged Marjorie out onto the back porch, found a piece of lumber laying around, and starts beating her at her arm and her back and everything so badly she runs away. Run, like literally runs away a mile to the neighbor's house, the curtains, K-I-R-T-O-N, curtains, um, and stays there for several days. She's terrified um, because both Marjorie and the mother say that he threatened to kill them all. Dora, in fact, while this all is going on, to like Edmund's rushed up to do whatever to Marjorie, mm-hmm. Dora tells a, a black man on the property who, you know, works with them, helps them, to go get the police that Edmund has threatened to kill us all. Um, but Edmund hears her saying that, and he comes out and he goes, you alive? The black man says, yes, sir. And he goes, do you want to stay that way? Yes, sir. You best not head toward Pamplico then. Oh, my God. So he doesn't. He leaves. And when Marjorie goes to stay with his other family, the curtain, she tells them the same thing. He threatened to kill us yeah. all. Mm-hmm. She's so afraid that she actually goes to her lawyer that next day or next weekend and has him draw up her will. Um, that's how truly afraid she is. And he tells her, you better keep those blank deeds on your person at all times. You better hold tight hold to them because that's what he wants. You know, that's what he's after. Um, so I guess he didn't even get them he after the beating and everything. Yeah. She, ran away she ran away and he was on. Yeah, hand. exactly. Okay. Um, okay. So now we come to January 15th, 1921. This is the day that this entire story, these two podcasts have been building toward. It's a bitterly cold day. It's gray, no sunshine peeking through the dark clouds. It's hog killing time. They do that in the winter time. And it's grinding day at the mill. So um, they would take their grits and, and, and meal to be ground there at the mill. Um, Dora is going to do that, the grandmother. And, and the little McCracken boys are excited. You know, they have this adopted grandma, and they get to ride in the buggy to town mm-hmm. to get the mill ground. And they're kind of running around. And um, remember, even though the, the family owns the farm, there are a lot of um, helpers there. And, and I say helpers there. It's um, black people who are paid by the family, probably not very well, who live, you know, nearby, probably left over from slave times, you know, where one family owned them, they now still work for them. Mm-hmm. So um, it's, it's bustling, right? It's, it's, it's people kind of, a lot of people around, it's cold, but it's sort of an everyday 
a scene of everyday life at this time, right? A farm on a winter's day. This is kind of what happens. Um, so Dora hitches up the wagon. She's a big lady. They say she's like 200 pounds. Lifts herself okay. up in the wagon. Little boys get up with her. And um, they put a blanket around themselves and they head on into town. So most of the hog killing's done in the morning. So most of the people go away. The afternoon, um, Edmund and Smiley planned to go out and measure some timber out in the woods. Remember, that was one of the big money makers for them was timber that they sold. Yes. So that's kind of the plan. So they have lunch, and apparently um, one of the books says that Edmund was, was jovial. He was um, hmm. in a good mood. Strangely. Really Perhaps happy. strangely so. Yeah. Exactly. And also by this time, things have calmed down. This is a week after the incident with the, the beating of the and mother the and deeds. the sister and the deeds. And Marjorie's come home. Okay. Um, so she's she has her room, you know, her sewing machine upstairs where she just kind of stays. I don't want to get away from everybody. In fact, she supposedly hollered down to, um, they had a woman who cooked for them that they called Aunt Sylvie. That she didn't want anything to eat. She was going to rest mm-hmm. till about 3 o'clock. She just needed to rest. I'm suspecting with a week that has gone by, Edmund has time to conjure up a little something that per- perhaps maybe so. is about to happen. Perhaps so. Regarding those deeds, yeah. So mid-afternoon, um, Edmund decides to take his family, his wife and his daughters, to Pamplico, which is about five miles away. So they bundle up. I mean, remember, it's cold. It's January 15th. Mm-hmm. They bundle up. They, there's a car shed that's a little away from the house where they keep the old Buick and um, they all get inside and, and for some reason I guess that you had to sometimes it was like too cold for the car to start so they say he had to get a kettle of hot water to wow. get it going yeah I don't know exactly how that works but that's what they say he did so he goes back into the house with the empty kettle um, and, and here's what happens next according to Catherine Bowling. This done, he took the kettle back to the house, and while the Buick sat in the shed, sputtering and popping, you can imagine it was, it was an old car, right. so kind of loud, Edmund took another pistol from his room and stealthily crept up to Marjorie's door. In her room, his sister sat sewing, glad to have the house to herself. Right. Probably a very yeah. rare thing, right? Opening the door and aiming the pistol, seeing the startled look on Marjorie's face, again, this is has to be imagined by the author but this is what she reports Mm -hmm. seeing her crumple hearing the thud as she hit the trunk watching the blood seep across the floorboards ripping open the top buttons of her shift where she kept those blank deeds careful not to get blood on them they were his now and the dirty work was finished now to get away from the house as quickly as possible just outside marjorie's room leaning on the facing with that nub of an arm he listened From the top of the stairs, all he could hear was the distant noise of the car. His family's still in the car, right? There were no sounds from the room behind him. Mm. So he was pretty sure that he'd killed her. Quickly, he put the deeds in Smiley's room. Okay. Which is interesting. Coming through the back door onto the connecting porch, he could not believe his eyes, for there was his mother driving the buggy into the yard, the little boys hopping down from the buggy. A short milling that day had brought them back early. He expected them to be gone for hours. Okay. Not a minute to spare, he shot old Dora. What? In the car? His mother. 
buggy. Who was driving the, the buggy. buggy. The McCracken boys running now, darting in every direction. The closest one he shot on the piazza. The other, who had paused to unhitch the buggy, took some running down. Quickly now to the car, half running, before one of his own children, impatient with the weight, jumped out. Quickly up the road on the unnecessary trip to Foxworth's. Quickly to be gone from that house and then back down past it again and on the way to Pamplico. Rapidly through that damned sand of those low country roads up to Foxworth, tossing a few words of instructions over his shoulders to Foxworth, tearing back down the sandy hill and onto the rutted river road. On his way now, out of that whole ugly mess that had to be done, soon into Pamplico and away from the entire scene. So what's he doing? He's creating an alibi, right? He is, he's left the house. Look, I went and talked to Foxworth. He'll tell you. And then we went to the town of Pamplico. We did some shopping, whatever. That's what he's right. setting up. So he goes in the opposite direction from Pamplico to talk to this man, Foxworth, whoever he was. So he's got to pass by his own house again to get to Pamplico. So I'll continue reading here. But as he neared the house, what to his wondering eyes should appear but the bloody expanse of his mother staggering down the path beside the house. Bloody. Jumping out, he yelled, he jumped out of the moving car, yelling to May, his wife. He yelled to May to stop the car as it continued down the ruts of the road, almost past the house before she could stop it, yelling to Louise to run to Miss Curtin's for help. With his one arm, Edmund pulled, heaved, dragged his mother back as far as the old well. Dropping the heavy burden, he whipped out his pistol, shooting his mother for the second time oh. and blasting the false teeth from her head. Oh. In the month of January, there was perspiration standing on Edmund Bigham's forehead, and Mr. Garrison was passing down the road. So, that's how Catherine Bowling explains that it happened. Um... But what about Smiley? Where was he during all this? Well, according to Bolin, earlier, before they even got in the Buick to go to Pamplico, Edmund had followed Smiley into the woods where he was measuring some timber, shot him in the temple, positioned him with that gun, and it, he used Smiley's own gun to shoot him, positioned him with his, the gun in his own hand so that it looked like suicide. This is how it was first reported in the local papers. I mean, can you imagine? If five people were died now, right. it would be crazy. National, then, yeah. Then nothing like this happened, you know? The headline is, Florence Tragedy Takes Five Lives. L.S. Bigham, for whom officials, sorry, for whom officers search, found dead in woods, thought to be suicide following killing of mother, sister, and two adopted children. So this is the way Edmund set it up. Here's the article. This is from January 16th, so the day after it happened. Temporarily insane from brooding over financial difficulties and embittered by family troubles in which an estate worth probably 75000 was at stake, L.S. Bigham, yesterday afternoon, remember that's Smiley, according to the best information and belief, shot his mother, his sister, the latter's two adopted children, and then sent a bullet crashing through his own brain. The dead are Mrs. M. M. Bigham, Mrs. Marjorie A. Black, Leo McCracken, and John McCracken, and L.S. Bigham. All were evidently killed instantly, except Mrs. Bigham, the man's mother, who lived a few moments, and the oldest child, who died at 5 o'clock this morning. The tragedy took place at the old Bigham home, five miles from Pamplico, Florence County. 
After slaying all within the house at the time, it is thought Bigham went deep into the woods surrounding the place and fired a bullet into his brain. When his body was found at noon today, his right hand still grasped, grasped the pistol. It was stated by the physician who examined the body that Bigham had been dead more than 12 hours. If you remember, this happened, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon, winter, it gets dark early. So by the time they were able to call people there, it was dark. dark. So yeah. they didn't know where Smiley was. They were, Edmund told them, Edmund told them that when he saw his mother, she said, Smiley has killed us all. And so that's what Edmund's telling everybody. So they're like, oh my God, where, where is, is he? he? He pretends not to know that he's in the oh. woods. Um, listen to this. This is more of that article. This is pretty disturbing about what happens next at the home. The Bigham home is more than half a mile distant from any neighboring house. None could be found today who had heard any shooting about the place. A large crowd gathered during the day and passed from room to room viewing the dead. The sight was a ghastly one. On a bed in a downstairs room lay the aged mother and the youngest child, their faces covered with blood. In the adjoining room, the oldest of the children lay on a bed where he died at five o'clock this morning, and beside him, the body of Bigham was placed when the searchers returned with it today. Upstairs in the room she usually occupied was the body of Mrs. Marjorie Black, oldest sister of Bigham. It lay on the floor just in front of the dresser. Until late this afternoon, when the coroner's jury completed taking evidence, the bodies were undisturbed. The funeral will probably be held tomorrow. Isn't that so creepy? It's so awful. It's heartbreaking. It's like violent. It's crazy. It's I, you can't even believe it's true. And then the fact of these people walking. Why are they viewing the bodies like that? That's something that used to happen, that they used to do. So where is Edmund during all this? So, good question. He is there. Um, he... Playing dumb. Playing dumb, racked with grief, you know. Um, his four members of his family were just killed, five members. Um, his, his wife and daughters were horrified. You know, they saw some of the, they saw, they, the little girls saw their grandmother walking toward them, like bleeding Blood. from her head. So, you know, you can imagine how awful it was. Um, the five family members were buried on Monday. The murder happened on a Saturday. They were buried on Monday in a common grave all together at Beulah Baptist Church. Um, you can go see their graves today. We have wow. photos of them on our website, WNBF News, um, as well as pictures of several of the family, if, if anybody has any interest in seeing them. Even before the coroner's inquest could finish, there were suspicions, right? Edmund had laid this out so perfectly. Marjorie's estranged husband, Dr. Black, who had moved to Florida, and the father of the two adopted boys, the McCrackens, they both swore out warrants on Edmund and, like, filed a civil suit against him. So they are suspicious. They think he did it. Yeah. And they, they, they swear out a warrant. They say, I want to swear out a warrant on yeah. him for killing my children and my wife. Um, this is because the coroner had not... I mean, you can imagine how, how, what a complicated scene this scene is. Was. There are yeah. five bodies in five different places. There's these theories. There's these motives behind it. So almost a month after it happened, February 8th, the coroner says that he has enough evidence to hold him. Okay. So Edmund then is officially charged with five murders, but the one he'll go on trial for first is Smiley's murder. Okay. The trials of Edmund Bigham, of which there were three, there were three different trials, are just as 
dark and tangled and unbelievable as everything else we've been talking about. And we're going to save that till our next podcast. Hear how the story of the Bigums of Florence County ends in our next episode of Carolina True Crime. For WMBF News, I'm Ashley Talley talking with Audrey Bisque. Thank you for listening to Carolina True Crime, a podcast presented by WMBF News. To learn more about the story you heard here and other mysteries and crimes from across the Carolinas, go to our website, wmbfnews.com.